start this week with a thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who provides the photograph which adorns the cover art on the front of the podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Financial Crime Weekly. My name's Chris Kirkbride. Quite a bit this week on sanctions overseas, but a bit on fraud and a bit on money laundering. So let's start with Russian sanctions, where it has really in the United Kingdom gone to a trickle. A couple of licenses issued by the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation this week. Nothing too much to say about it, really. Um, Sanctions, fairly niche sanctions, in my view, relating to payments by charities relating to Russia and a license which allows for certain businesses relating to the operation of civilian telecom services and news media. Nothing else really happening. I suppose all we've got left, certainly from the UK's perspective, is to sanction a few more people. But uh, I don't think there's a political will there. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being cynical. Beyond the UK is far more interesting, much more interesting picture. As we've commented in previous editions of the Financial Crime Weekly, the EU continues to struggle with the need to agree sanctions between its members over energy imports from the Russian Federation. Problematic to reaching agreement is the fact that certain of the landlocked former communist bloc countries, that is Hungary, Hungary, Slovakia and Czechia, are all heavily dependent on oil imported from Russia. The latest sanctions which have been agreed by the European Union will exempt those countries for an unspecified period. In fact, I think it's likely to be open-ended so that they can continue to be supplied with oil to support them. That oil comes via a Soviet-era pipeline. Consequently, the agreement reached this week will place a ban on 90%, not 100%, of course, because of those three exemptions, 90% of oil imports from Russia by the end of 2022. Now, this is a significant move given the reluctance of those three countries to agree a comprehensive ban for understandable reasons. They've got economic economic well-being to think about. Uh, But it certainly does not look like the end. The EU is going to keep going on this. The Estonian Prime Minister, Kaja Kallas, this week has called for the European Union to consider further sanctions as long as the war continues doesn't seem to be showing any signs of ending, despite some news coming out about Putin relating to his health and so on, which I've heard from a couple of sources, but those sources have increased in number and they're reasonably good sources as well relating to how ill he is and whether that would bring an end to the conflict if he were to pass. Well, I don't know, it remains to be seen, but it's something that's worth watching. So watch this space, as I suppose we might say. Away from Russian sanctions, it's worth remembering that sanctions continue to operate against many countries. We saw this week there were further attempts to embolden sanctions against North Korea at the UN. But we should also remember that sanctions remain in place against the Syrian regime. Now, this week, the European Council has extended its sanctions regime against the Syrians, Bashar al-Assad. For another year, the sanctions which were introduced in 2011, it's incredible to think it's been over a decade, have been extended. They actually include bans on oil imports, restrictions on investments and an asset freeze on assets belonging or held by the Syrian central bank within the European Union. There are also 
as you might expect of these sort of sanctions, given the human rights abuses and so on and so forth. There are export restrictions on equipment and technology that might be used for internal repression, as well as on equipment and technology which could be used in covert surveillance of the population. The sanctions will now expire on the 1st of June 2023, though without regime change in Syria. They're likely to be extended again next year. Now, just thinking about this and what's happening with the Russian Federation and how it's supported Bashar al-Assad, one of the few countries around the world that has supported him in his efforts to suppress his people, but then to fight against ISIS, which was occupying large parts of Syria and, of course, Iraq at the time. Now, the Russian Federation has been a strong supporter of Syria for a considerable time, but Russia was in a much stronger position, both economically and militarily, when it was supporting Syria at the original point these sanctions were introduced. But Russia now is suffering both financially and militarily. Yeah, I mean, it's not just the state of the Russian economy which is under threat, but I'm no expert on this, but from what I read about the impact it, uh, that the invasion of Ukraine is having on the Russian military, then you have to wonder quite how long the unqualified financial and military support for Syria can go on. Again, watch this space. This becomes very interesting. Russia is not, I would suggest, the power that it was when it first offered its unending support to the Syrian regime. Now, one final story before we leave the EU this week. Uh, Politico reports that Roman Abramovich, uh, former owner of Chelsea Football Club and ally of Putin, has started legal proceedings, along with many others, against the European Union. The article reports that at least 20 of Russia's most powerful oligarchs are filing cases against the European Union to unfreeze their assets and unblock their visas. Frankly, I can't really see this going anywhere, and if it does, it won't be for some considerable time because it's got to work its way through the court system. But it does indicate something of the mood of the oligarchs in relation to their current sanctioned state, which is something we've not always been privy to. The news on how the oligarchs are taking these sanctions which have attached to them has not really been something that's ever made the press. Some bits and pieces might have leaked out, but the fact that they've gone or taken this public step of action to try and counter the sanctions which have been imposed on them gives an important angle or perspective into what their sense of being is when it comes to these sanctions. I still don't think it will go anywhere, this. I really don't. I think anything or any attempt to try and reverse these sanctions is not going to work until Russia removes itself from Ukraine. That's what it will take. Now, across the pond in the U.S. this week, more sanctions activity. The U.S. Treasury and the State Departments have issued sanctions against certain Russian oligarchs, 
which aim to target their trinkets, particularly their yachts. They love a super yacht, don't they? And the wealth and asset management companies which provide the services which make life so manageable for Russian oligarchs. You'll recall this is something the UK did. We mentioned it on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast a couple of weeks ago. The EU's been looking at doing this as well. The named individuals in the US sanctions are God Nizanov, who's an oligarch with commercial real estate interests and gain links to Putin, and also the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman, who is Maria Zakharova. Now, before we finish this week, a couple of footnotes worth flagging, I suppose. First, Russian banks. Russian banks that in order to take part in the global financial system, you're advised to onboard the concordats, the capital adequacy rules and so on that come out of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, which is based in Switzerland. It has rule books for good bank management and bank supervision. The rule book, uh, the rule book operates globally uh, in all democratic systems. Uh, but has become something of an oddity. Russia started to look hard at it in light of the significant sanctions which have been imposed on Russian banks since the start of the conflict. To be frank, I mean, the fact that Russia is now saying, well, we're going to abandon these Basel concordats, these Basel principles of capital compliance and bank supervision in favour of a Russian system, to be frank, I think it's surprising that, that it's taken them this long to do it. But actually, I mean, if you trawl back through the internet, as I did when I read this story, this is something that's been mentioned in the media for about seven months. This proposal that Russia is turning its back on the Basel Committee's um, materials, its capital adequacy rules, and so on and so forth. So... I'm not really surprised about this. Other than that, I thought they'd have done it sooner. Or certainly proposed it sooner. Finally tonight, or today, the Russian Central Bank has frozen trades in US-listed shares. Again, nothing really surprising on that. No shocks. That'll do on sanctions for this week. Let's move to fraud. Some interesting fraud stuff this week. Actually, there's been some interesting fraud stuff over the last few weeks. First, some fraud news concerning Meta, which is the new name for Facebook, or it's the company which owns the social media provider, um, Facebook. The Financial Conduct Authority has issued a warning to Meta that it needs to intervene to stop displaying fraudulent advertisements for financial products. This comes off the back of a bit of heel-dragging by social media companies, including Twitter for that matter, taking revenue from corporations placing such advertisements. This news comes out against a backdrop. There have been consistent stories, and there was a Financial Crime Weekly special on fraud in the context of governments and the COVID-19 recovery scheme. So fraud is big at the moment. The government's turning its attention to fraud and the harm that fraud causes, and it made various recommendations in the Queen's speech, again, which we looked at in the Financial Crime Weekly a few months ago. So it's hardly surprising that they're turning their attention to Meta. But the indication is that the Financial Conduct Authority may be losing patience with Meta because of this heel-dragging. And hell hath no fury 
like a regulator scorned. In other fraud news this week, the Serious Fraud Office has announced the news that two perpetrators of a £37 million ethical investment scam have been found guilty at Southwark Crown Court of three charges of conspiracy to defraud and one of misconduct when winding up a company. Uh, The people were Andrew Nathaniel Skeen and Junie Conrad Amari Bowers. They conned victims who thought they were investing in an ethical and and environmental scheme to protect the Amazonian rainforest and invest sustainably in communities in that region. In fact, it was all part of an elaborate, elaborate scam of global money transfers, forged documents and invented identities, all designed to take money from pensioners and those with an interest in environmental matters. The scam caught around 2,000 pensioners out under the false pretense of giving some environmental protection investment. I understand sentencing will happen either later this month or early next. Sticking with green investment in Germany this week, the authorities have raided the offices of Deutsche Bank and its asset management subsidiary DWS in relation to an alleged greenwashing investment fraud where the green credentials of investment schemes were overstated and that environmental, social and governance, ESG, the initialism that sends fear into the heart of every compliance officer, these ESG standards were not applied as consistently as might have been represented in prospectuses advertising the investments. Deutsche Bank has indicated that it will cooperate with the authorities as they seek to get to the bottom of the issue. Now, money laundering. What's been happening this week? Well, there's a bit happening this week, actually. First, we'll start with the European Union. The European supervisory authorities, and there are three of them, there are European Banking Authority, the European Insurance and Occupational Pensions Authority, and the European Securities and Markets Authority. They have together issued a joint report into the circumstances in which serious breaches of anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism rules would result in withdrawal of authorization uh, to conduct financial services business within the EU. The report is focused on the completeness, adequacy and uniformity of applicable law and practice respecting the withdrawal of a license for serious breaches of AML and uh, countering the finances, uh, the financing of terrorism. The report notes the importance of integration of AML and CFT into prudential regulation and supervision, along with calls for the inclusion of assessments made by competent authorities of the adequacy of arrangements and processes to ensure that AML and CFT compliance operates as a condition for authorization or registration. This would, of course, require cooperation and information exchange between prudential supervisors and AML, uh, countering of financial terrorism uh, finances, uh, supervisors rather, to see that nothing is missed in the process. What the report does is it purports to set down uniform criteria for serious breaches of AML and CFT rules, noting that serious breach is subject to a case-by-case assessment. And, of course, uh, a principles-based approach can only really have that. Uh, It should be noted as a crucial point that given the range of sanctions available 
to AML and CFT uh, regulatory authorities, withdrawal of authorization should be a last resort and utilized only in the most extreme cases of failure in AML and CFT. In other AML news this week, the government of Jersey, through the Jersey Financial Services Commission, has published its first national risk assessment on the virtual asset sector in Jersey from the point of view of anti-money laundering and the countering of the financing of terrorism. This is something which has been on the policy agendas nationally and internationally in recent weeks, so the fact that more of these stories are coming to light should come as no surprise to anybody. The report identifies that while the financial services sector in Jersey has adopted a relatively conservative approach to virtual assets, they do represent a challenge for the sector due to the risks they present, given that their cross-jurisdictional nature can amplify risk given the information asymmetries, so who's responsible for what, who are the people transacting, and so on and so forth. That said, as the authorities continue to align with the Financial Action Task Force standards by the implementation of local laws to encompass virtual asset service providers, the Jersey Financial Services Commission will be able to collect meaningful data, allowing authorities to undertake a full risk assessment using the World Bank's risk assessment methodology in line with previous national risk assessments. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to subscribe, you can do. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and I will see you, all being well, next Sunday. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.